All right, so I've titled this message, The Busyness of Idleness. Um, And as we'll get through this, uh, it'll make a little bit more sense. But I want to read, actually, I want to read the first part of three, one through five first, and kind of show how we're going to move off of that before we get into the main part there. But I'll start here in verse one. It says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And I like what he says there at the end of verse 4, and he says that that you will do the things that he commands. Remember Paul's meeting the church. And he's sending them back these letters, and he's trying to admonish and encourage what they have going on. But then he caps it off with saying, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Because he knows that that's ultimately how the church is going to be advanced. That they've got to see that, and they've got to continue that. Here in verse 6, he, goes, he puts this nice big word for us right there. It says, now. And this next, sort of, this next section of text, he's going to talk about idleness. Um, and busyness, and kind of how all that's playing into the church at that time. But he starts off and he says, now. And when we see this word now here, and I'm going to read the command after, this is not Paul giving them some mere suggestion on what he thinks they should do, if they'd like to, if they have time for it, or um, if they think it's a good idea. It's It's an imperative now and he's saying, this is the commandment I've given to you. And it would carry in that time the weight of what would be similar to a, uh, a judgment that comes from a court. Um, it's, it's, it's very emphatic. And he says, now. And I'm going to go ahead and read through this section of scripture here, the first part. It says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Wow. That's a bold, powerful statement there. There's a lot of things going on here. And when he gives this command, he says that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness, not in accord with tradition that you received from us. So the first thing is, is what is he talking about, this tradition that he's talking about? Well, back in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 15, he says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the, tra- the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And he's, just re- he's referencing back to all the instructions that he's given to the church. And the reason why he's saying that is there's, still this, there's always this chance in the church in this time where these, there's a level of heresy that tends to sneak in. There's this idea where they get off of course of what Paul had taught them. And he's bringing them back to him and saying, commanding them that, he, that they follow these traditions that what he spoke to them. And then 3, 4, he said, and we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. So Paul's not just saying that this is a good idea. He's telling this is what is necessary. This is what you're going to have to do as a church in order for us to move forward. Now I want us to look at those two words he had there. Um, in that first, in the, let's see, I read the one on idleness. Give me one second here. And busyness is a little further down, but I want us to look at those two words. Idleness and busybody. Those are two words he mentions here where we need to stay away from. Idleness, as you see on the screen there, in the Greek, is a, it comes from a word called a taktos. 
Um, now, I know idleness is a common word in our, in our society, but I was interested in how the definition played out here. It says that it's disorderly, out of ranks, and deviating from the prescribed order or rule. Um, so idleness also has a connotation of, of doing very little or doing something slow um, or being idle, as we call it, but also this idea of being out of ranks and being out of line from what the person is prescribed. And then busybody, we've heard that as well, but to bustle about uselessly, to busy oneself about trifling, needless, useless matters, and particularly um, of a person that's inquisitive of another person's affairs. Okay, so these are two words that he's, he's bouncing off here that he's getting them to understand is this idea of idleness and, this, and busybody. Okay, so it's easy for us to have the appearance of being busy, but really not accomplishing anything, right? Anybody ever, ever seen that, or maybe you've even experienced that in your own life? You know, I think it's like a good example of that is, is has anybody here ever been stuck, um, like, in the mud, and your vehicle doesn't move at all, you know? And no matter how much you rev the engine, no matter how many times you put it in forward, reverse, gear one, gear two, no matter what you do, what happens? You just spin the tires. But here's the thing. The engine's working just as hard as it always does. You know, it's putting out the same amount of RPM, if not, in most cases, way more. Um, and, but the vehicle's going nowhere. And that's this picture of being a busybody. There's a lot of action and motion and activity going on, but there's really nothing that's happening. There's no effectiveness. And in this case, for the church, there's nothing being done effectively for the gospel. That the gospel's not being effectively moved forward. So that's just an idea of where, where he's moving with this. So I'm going to read the rest of the text, and then we're, going to, we're kind of going to unpack this and get into it a little bit further. So starting in verse 7, it says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you as ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what it says in this letter... Take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. And do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine, that it is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. All right, there's a whole lot of things going on here. So I want to start here in this first part. And the first point here tonight is we got to, in order to not fall into this trap of idleness and busybody, he gives them a command there, he says, about imitating them. And we need to be that too. We, need, we must focus on imitating Christ. We must focus on imitating Christ. In verses 6 through 8, he hits this, and he, he speaks about this idea. Uh, he says it right there, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. And the reason why they should know is because he's saying, I've shown you. I've been here. And 
he makes this really bold statement about this idea of imitating him. If we go through the scriptures, there's actually there's four more scriptures in his writings to Thessalonians, also to the Corinthians, and also to Ephesians. We've got them right here. just want you to look at them. But he says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, And you became imitators of us and the Lord. 1 Corinthians 4, 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And Ephesians 5, 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So no matter what church he's speaking to, he's always got this idea of when he shows up on the scene, he wants to teach them and to show them what it means to follow after Christ, what it means to advance the gospel. And he's, and he's so sure of what he's saying that he says, follow me, imitate me. And that's a, that's a bold statement, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I question myself with it all the time is, you know, am I in a place that I can say that? You know, and if you, and if you ask yourself that question enough, um, it, you begin to think differently about your life and the things that, you know, you maybe thought were trivial. All of a sudden, when, when you realize that the command for you is that you walk in a way in that which people can imitate you, it should change you. Um, and it's not in your own power that it changes you, but it's that, that indwelling of the Holy Spirit that you have in your heart begins to empower you and begins to show you that this is what he's called us to. So that's what Paul's encouraging them, that they imitate him. And I think about, you know, imitation, for example, and, you know, we're just thinking our everyday life. You know, we think of, you know, something that's pretty close to the real deal, but uh, sometimes you can tell, sometimes you can't. You know, I mean, it's always different, whether it be something, a name brand, whatever it is. Uh, but then I also think about, you know, in our relationships, um, as a parent um, with children, as you know, they are really good at imitating the things that you do, uh, sometimes to your pleasure um, and sometimes not so much. Um, but what I've learned in my short stint, um, it's, I have a combined experience of uh, almost 20 years of parenting. You know how they do that? Uh, really, it's only 10 um, but, you know, you begin to, it begins to reveal things about yourself, that imitation process. Because, uh, like I said, there are certain things that you see and you're like, man, I'm excited that they have a desire to pray or they have a desire to help people, you know. But then it's like, I'm not so happy they have a desire to, like, fight other people um, and hit other people and whatever else comes along with it, you know. But you realize, and what I've what I've learned is, is sometimes I'm like, you know, well, where did they learn that from? It's probably their mom, you know, typically. <laughs> that's not true. Only the sweet stuff. But the reality is, is as, as human beings, as people, we, we imitate uh, things that are around us, things that people that have influence on us. And he's just trying to say how important it is as believers that we walk in a fashion that the people that, that we are in discipleship with, the people that we are walking with, that they are imitating Christ-likeness. Um, and, and by doing so is how we steer away from this idea of idleness and just being a busybody and just being busy about things that don't matter for the kingdom ultimately. Um, you know, there's this example that gets put out. You know, think about putting a puzzle together. And I'm not a big puzzle guy, but every summer... Rachel and the boys do that. They buy this, I'm convinced that the biggest puzzle that they can fit on the table, you know, and they begin to work on this thing, and you dump all these pieces out, 
And I'll think sometimes, you know, if you didn't have that box to look out, look at, I don't know how you would ever put all them pieces together. Um, of course, they got started on one this summer, and about halfway through the summer, I'm not sure how far they got, but a cat um, jumped up on the table and spread all the pieces out. So I think they kind of moved that project to next summer. Um, but it's the same thing. If you didn't have that box there, if you didn't have that example to see, you know, I could probably tell you where the four corners were and all the edge pieces. But after that, I'd be done. Um, and we need, an, you know, as believers, we need examples in our life of people that, that exemplify Christ and that show us, you know, because we're all at different stages in this walk. You know, I talk to people all the time, you know, from people that's newly saved to someone that's been walking with the Lord for 20, 30, 40 years, and your perspectives on life and Christianity are different because you're in a different place. And it's important that we have those people in our lives to speak to. And that's what he's saying there. He sh- I showed you guys how to do this. I imitated us on what to do. And then he states, after that he says, he said that he did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. If we read there, it says, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. And this, the picture he's saying for there is that he earned, he worked for, his, I mean, his very food that he needed um, to, to show the church what it meant to be busy. Not only, you know, don't get confused here. This is not only just being busy about doing specific ministry, for example, but this is busy about your life, where you are in your workplace, um, raising your family, because as believers, everything we do is a level of ministry. And then we all, and it's, it's the reason why we do what we do, is because of who Christ is in us. Um, and he's just shown that, you know, whether we were preparing a campsite or a tent, whatever it was, we were busy about doing that work. Because he goes in there and says that because we toiled and we labored all day and all night. Now, when Paul's saying that there about... Um, you know, earning it, I think what he's speaking to in a lot of ways is that you don't have this idea of entitlement inside of the church. Does anybody know anything about entitlement in America, for example? Um, it was interesting as we, as we were on vacation, you know, we don't get to see the same news here in America that they see outside of America. And, you know, if, if any of you have seen it, it's, it's quite, I don't know if comical is the right word, uh, maybe interesting is a better word, uh, but their view of America um, is not the same as ours. Um, they see spoiled, bratty, um, entitled, um, and they would probably be correct um, in most cases. And, the, you know, and maybe some of it stems from other things, but the idea is the American society, and along with that, the American church, we've gotten to this place of, you know, what's owed to us? You know, and then what do, what do people need to do for us? And guys, that's just, that's the wrong approach. And Paul said, that's, no, you need, to, you need to work hard for the ministry and for the gospel calling. You know, why do, you know, ask, your question, ask yourself this question. You don't have to answer right now. But why do you come to church? Why do you get up on Sunday? Why do you come on a Wednesday night? Why do you come here? Fellowship. You know? Listen to a good worship team, nice coffee, good donuts, or, or to, be, to be shepherded, to learn about God's word, and to put ourselves in a position so that when we walk out of these doors, we can advance the gospel. 
So the idea is when you ask that question of yourself, once again, it's revealing um, of maybe some areas that God's trying to work, and that's okay. But guys, we need to be in a place as a church of where we don't have this idea of entitlement. You know, as a, as a parent, you know, we work hard to not always be just giving in to commands of our children, you know, because that's what, that's what they do. Uh, I mean, that's the idea. But the, on the flip side of that is, is you just don't necessarily always get what you want in life. Um, it's just not like that. It's not about you. You know, that's just the reality. You know, I can remember when I was growing up, um, this was in a time when Jabot jeans were like the end thing, right? Uh, for those of you who are a child of the 80s, uh, you know what I'm talking about. And, um, you know, I, I, of course, I wanted a pair, right? You know, but in my family, you know, those were, those were not things you needed. You know, the Lee jeans or whatever was at Walmart was just fine. Um, and you, you just were okay with that. But I can remember wanting them, and I just couldn't understand why I couldn't have a pair. I just wanted a pair. You know, I was like, well, sorry, you, you can't have any. So ultimately, my mom gave me this task that if I could memorize my multiplication facts, that this is probably about two or three years after you're supposed to. Um, so it wasn't like I was ahead of the class by any means. Um, but for somehow that was enough initiative for me. I went ahead and memorized my multiplication facts and get your first pair of Jabot jeans, you know. And, you know but this, the, the idea was there is I had to work for it. Um, there was something that I had to do in order to get that. Of course, I never got another pair after that again, I don't believe, um, then, nor did I probably really care. Um, because, you know, if, if you know my mom, you know, she would always, she would, yeah, I'm going to let you get that pair, but then it was like the one she wanted to pick out, you know. So it probably wasn't really the one that I really wanted. But, you know, you know how moms are. they got to make you look cute, you know, with your turtleneck. Um, so there's this idea that, you know, we don't always just get what we want. And that's what he's trying to show them there, that we need to be in a place to imitate Christ. First, next point here, he says, we must toil and labor in all that we do for the gospel. We must toil and labor. He's talking about work here, but I'm adding to that in everything that we do for the advancing of the gospel. And, it, and he continues there. He says, but with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because of we didn't have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example, once again here, to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So the first part here is that hard work is good for us, guys, and we were designed for that. We were designed to work hard at whatever we're doing, and in that to have a servant's heart, you know. We weren't designed to just chillax in life and just go about just waiting to see what the next wind was going to change. We were meant to work, okay. Now, where that, where that is and what you do, that takes many different forms. Right? That takes many different areas of our life. Some of us, it starts with our family in the morning where we go to work, extracurricular activities we do, but it doesn't matter. Whatever we do, we work hard. And the reason why we do that is so that so the name of Christ would be glorified in all that we do. And that's the idea. It's really that simple. Um, and then, but in our culture today, we do have this idea that it's supposed to just be easy. And that everything's easy. Now, there will be things in life that are easy. 
But just count it as a blessing and be excited about it because we're not owed that, you know. I mean, the message of the cross is one of suffering, guys. Um, And it's not that we need to get hung up on that, but we need to understand that that's a part of life too. And it's okay because in that we're able to advance the gospel and we're able to reach people in ways that we may have never been able to be before because they don't get to see you in that setting. It's important. That's where that imitation part comes in. Next part there, he did not want to be a burden on the church, and he wanted to set an example. And what he's talking about there is, is you know, as a, as a preacher, as an apostle of the word, as Scripture tells us, Paul didn't technically have to engage in the so-called physical labor that was there, that his preaching and his teaching was, was hard work and that he could have been fed for that. But he chose, as he does with all of his churches as he's starting them off, is this is, he wants to set the example of what it means to work hard in every area of your life and to set that into place. You know, I can think about, I, I wasn't here when Living Word first started, um, but I can remember seeing pictures when there was, you know, 10 people, and all of those people here, including pastors and staff and, those, and the how many members were, were, were putting things together, were building, if you, there was pictures back from putting the gym back together on Valhai. And as this idea that the church comes together, rallies around one another, and you just do what's necessary at that time to take care of whatever needs to be taken care of. You know, it may be something as simple as vacuuming the church or something as much as going on a missions trip. Whatever it is, doesn't matter. The idea is, he was saying, let me be an example to you here. You know, I, I'd, as you go, I mean, this is a big church, um, and there's obviously lots of things that need to be done from time to time. But if you, if you pay attention, you'll notice there's always a handful of people in the church that do certain things around here that no one has asked of them. Um, they really, in, in most cases, if you don't pay attention, you would never notice it. There's always little things that need to be done. And I just, when you see people grasp that, and when you see people say, see a need and then just take care of it, there's this idea in this moment that if I do this, somebody else don't have to. And they can do something else. You know, for the, the uh, life group study that we're going through right now, through the book of Philippians in the last session we did, that was one of the things he talked about was this idea of servanthood. Um, and as the church and as a body of believers, that we're always looking for opportunities to do something to serve the people around us. And there's this idea that if you do it, then someone else doesn't have to. And you don't have to worry about whether it's going to get done because you're doing it. And it's just so important that not only here at Living Word Church in this building, but in every part of our life, in the workplace, wherever you are, that we're busy looking for opportunities to serve the people around us. And why? So the name of Christ will be glorified. So that when people see you and see what you do, they see Christ. So that we can be in that same place where Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Well, that wasn't just for Paul, guys. That was, that was for us. That was for the church to be able to do so. And the next point, he says he makes this strong statement here. And there's a lot to this. It's a short part. But he says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. You know, so that's obviously very basic in of itself there. That is, if if you don't have a desire to work for it, then you just don't eat. And see how long that lasts for you, right? See how long before you figure out that maybe work becomes a necessity. But there's another key part right here. And it says in that first part, it says, because what I, what I want to be careful here is that we understand that there's two parts to this, um, to this working thing. Because not everybody has the physical ability to do so, right? Well, look at that right there. It says, if anyone is not willing to work, willing to work. 
And that's an important part here because what Paul's going to show him here as we get into a little bit further, and as we know, Paul, in Acts 18.3, he talks about this. He says, And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So we know Paul had, had a trade in this, and this was part of, a part of what he would have done, I'm sure along with many other things. But then he puts this emphasis here on anyone that's not willing to work. Now look at two things here. One, I look at that as willing and able. That's somebody that can pretty much, that is physically able to do most anything that's called upon them to do. But then I also see that someone is willing, but they maybe physically cannot do. But guess what? They're in need of assistance. And guess what, guys? Then that's where the church is able to rally alongside that person, that group of people, and whatever. Maybe, maybe it is physical. Maybe it's just simple not being able to do so. But was that, is that person willing to work? Do they have a desire to serve? Do we have a desire, regardless of what our capabilities are, do we still want to serve, and do we still want to have a place where we can be used for the gospel and be used for ministry? And that's where we need to be. It's a matter of the heart in that moment. Okay, and then there's that idea there where as a church where we ha- we're able to extend charity and we're able to serve the people around us and to make this, make this happen. Because there's two parts there, and he's looking at the heart of that person. And then he kind of closes out, he says, And as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in well-doing, in verse 13. And right before that, he says, For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, In verse 12, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So the idea is get away from the idleness, get away from the busybody, really just go do your job. Just go take care of what you need to take care of and the rest will take care of itself quietly. We don't need all of this other stuff to go along with it, just do what you're supposed to do. It's just that simple. And now he gets to this part about not being weary. And I'm, we're going to get pretty deep here because there's some parts here that um, are pretty, what I think are pretty intense. Um, but why he's saying here, for as for you brothers, do not grow weary in good doing, is because this, they were seeing this in the church. They were having people that were leeching off of, um, you know, the other people. And there was, they're extending charity, remember, to these people that are willing but just can't. And then they're also extending charity to people that are just lazy, idle, busybodies. So what does that make you do in some situations? It makes you want to draw back all of your resources, right? You know, it's this idea of, I don't, you know, you know, the, you know, the whole idea of giving money to somebody on the side of the street, you know, I don't know what they're going to do with it. Well, it's not really up to us what they do with it, right? I mean, we give, when we extend charity, we extend that openly and freely. You know, the idea is, that same grace, that same free gift of God was given to us. Um, so we do the same thing to people around us. But what was happening is these people here were causing these problems and it was causing the church to want to draw back all of their resources, which is a problem. Because as a church, we are called to meet the needs of the church and the people around us. So my next point here is that we must confront idleness within the church. In verse 6, he says, Keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from him. And then in 14 and 15, he says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. And do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So what does all that mean? Right? Because it's 
pretty harsh sounding, right? And it is harsh in one sense, but in the other sense, it's, a, it's an extreme picture of Christ's love for the church and for the body of believers. I want to get into this a little bit deeper and explain some of that, but to do so, I want to read a section of Scripture in Matthew uh, that many of you have heard and familiar with. It's Matthew 18, 12 through 22. And it says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the last one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the other ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is heaven that one of these little ones should perish. He says, if your brother sin against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to him, tell them to the church. And if he refuses to listen ever to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you, if, two, if you agree on earth in anything they ask, and what be done by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. And then Peter came up to him and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus answered him, I do not say you seventy times, but seventy-seven times. So there's this picture here, and some of you may have heard this word, um, this idea of church discipline. Um, and I guess it automatically comes off kind of as a, a negative connotation, but it, it's really not. I want to kind of explain that a little bit more because really it's, it's really not. It actually, um, when there's discipleship taking place within the church, within the body of believers, this is a natural thing that happens that you may not even really notice that takes place. But remember, Paul's telling them this, that we need, those people need to be dealt with. And this scripture further identifies what he's talking about. So I want us to break it down here. Because remember, the ultimate goal in this, what Paul's trying to teach him, is that you're trying to gain back your brother. Um, There's this idea that you're trying to have restoration in the life of this believer. Um, It's not this idea of just trying to excommunicate someone. The idea is to restore a brother in Christ. It says that he gained your brother. Because if you look back at the end, he says, Do not regard him as an enemy but warn him as a brother. So remember, we're, we're speaking to believers within the church. Now, he kind of gives this list of how this process is supposed to look, and is this, you know, there's this idea here of, of tough love. But I want, you to put, I want you to think about it for a second. Um, you know, many of you may be involved in life groups, for example. Um, and some of you may be in a life group where you've been there a long time, and you truly, um, those are the people that you you do life with. Um, you get together on weekends outside of that, possibly. You speak to one another. You maybe do your own Bible studies. You know, you talk to one another. You share. Maybe you work together, so forth and so on. And think about it in some of those relationships, you know, where maybe one of you are, is struggling in a certain area, maybe with a particular sin, uh, maybe something that's been pointed out. And that brother comes alongside of you and says, hey, man, um, I noticed that you did such and such, right? Well, in most of those situations, what happens? That person responds, uh, at least in my experience, says, yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, I messed that up. I shouldn't have done that. Um, you know, I need, you know, I'm sorry, whatever. 
And then that's what Paul's saying right there is, is you've gained, you've gained the brother. Um, and in most cases in our life, that's what, you know, when we talk about church discipline and we talk about this discipleship process, most times we never make it past step one. In my experience, when there is active discipleship taking place um, in relationships. So that's the first part that there. He tells us in that scripture, he says, he says, talk to your brother in private. And then he says, it's, it's whoever sins against you, which is obviously strayed from the law of God. Someone's violated God's law. And he says, and tell him his fault. What I thought was interesting, you know, the sin and the fault actually in the Greek is two different words. Um, and excuse me, it's actually, it's actually the same word. So the sin that was committed and then the act of telling the fault, the actual telling part, is the same word. And there's this idea there that when we address sin in our life or when we're addressing sin with this brother and then we talk about this fault, what we're ultimately hoping is that the Holy Spirit convicts their heart. You know, we're, we're, just, we're just taking the opportunity to point that out and to show that. But the picture is there is that the Holy Spirit in that believer's life is working and is moving in their life. But he does say if, if they don't respond well to that, it says that you take one or two witnesses with you. That is, isn't random people you find on the street. Once again, this would be people that you are, you are living life, you are doing life with that are, are friends. And the idea is, is that you, you have a group of witnesses that are able to speak to the person and say, you know what, these people see the same thing too. And the idea is you coming in, this, in, the, in love, first of all. This is not, it's not condemnation. That's not our, our job there as much as it is to present the fault and then allow the Holy Spirit to work in the life of that believer and them to be able to see it. And then, if, and then if they get it then, then once again, you've gained a brother, which is the idea that there's been restoration in that person's life and then that person can now be busy about what? Advancing the gospel, okay? But then he takes it a step further. If they still don't get it there, then it says to bring it to the church. Now, it wasn't probably not going to call you up here on Sunday morning and uh, have you state your... Um, your sin. That's not the idea there. The idea when we speak of church, once again, we're talking about, um, remember, churches, ecclesia, the called out ones, um, and those are the, the, the body of believers that you work with. And then in, in a church setting, um, as pastors, you know, as shepherds of the flock, um, there's a responsibility of knowing, you know, hey, such and such has given their life to Christ, such and such has been baptized, such and such is a member of this church and is, and is walking in this church, and you, you know things about your, your, your sheep, right? A shepherd was out there in the field. He knew everything about his sheep, what tendencies certain ones had and why they did what they did, and he knew that certain ones, if he got them too close to the water, he'd have to bring them in with his crook because they might fall in. You know, it was this idea he understood his flock, and this idea of it, bringing it before the church is you, there's this picture of even before the pastoral uh, leadership of saying, all right, we need to take this a step further. And once again, it's this idea that we want to restore this brother to Christ. Because it says right there in that scripture that he goes and searches for the one and leaves the 99 behind and he rejoices when that one comes back. You know, there's this picture that of just the importance of even one person, even though you have a hundred of them. And one of them goes astray, how important it is for that one to come back to the flock. It's not that you're like, well, that, that sheep ran off, man, too bad for him. 
you know, see you later. No, no, that sheep belongs to the flock. It's the same thing for us as believers. We, as believers, belong to the body of Christ and to the church. And, it's, and we should, as believers, as a church, we should seek hard after people that have, have gone astray. You know, because it's, it's every person, all hands on deck, in order to advance the gospel of Christ. And then he says, and if they don't get it after all that, and this is where he's saying, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of him and have nothing to do with him that he may be, not, he may be ashamed. And that's where this, first port, this fourth part gets to. It says that it may get to, you may have to remove them from the flock. You know, this idea of disfellowship. But guess what? You still don't stop seeking after this person. Your approach now changes. You know, prior we were engaged in this idea of discipleship and this idea of trying to gain back this brother. But ultimately, if, they don't, if it's not their desire and they don't go there and they're disfellowshipped, as, this, as maybe one way to put it is, well, now it just becomes an evangelistic approach. Now we still pursue that person just as we would anybody else for Christ. That there's this idea that we, we're, we're unrelenting in our approach to anyone in our life. Now, obviously, we hope that it doesn't ever, you hope that it never gets to that point, but Paul's warning them that it could. And that if they're not mindful of that going on, if they're not mindful of what's going on in the church, then guess what? The flock is put in danger. You know, if there's a sheep, a uh, wolf in sheep's clothes in there, guess what happens? The, all of those sheep are in danger. Um, and it's, once again, it's, it's the idea that that shepherd is mindful of what's going on in his flock. And he's desiring to, to take care of them, once again, for what reason? So the name of Christ would be glorified. And that's so the church can be effective in advancing the gospel. And that they would respond, ultimately, to the Holy Spirit in their life. So it's a, it's a weighty section. Um, and it's, you know, it's not something that maybe we necessarily see always walked out in this one, two, three, four step process. But what I would encourage you is, is as you're in your relationships with people in this church, as you are um, active in discipleship, and working with one another, that you do look to gain back, to gain brothers in every situation. Um, as iron sharpens iron, Scripture tells us, is the idea that, and look, the reality is, is iron only sharpens iron if it touches, right? You can't just wave it near each other, okay? Iron has to touch iron in order for sharpening to take place. And the same thing goes for us as believers. You know, yeah, that's my... You know, that's my uh, discipleship partner. What do y'all do? Oh, nothing. No, that's not the point. The idea is is that we are active, and it's all of our responsibility. And and throughout our lives, we are being discipled and discipling, usually simultaneously. Um, And that's the desire that he has for the church. And there's this idea that when that's taking place, then this idea of idleness and busybodiness um, is able to be nipped quick and at the beginning before it takes place, and it doesn't affect the church. And then he goes into verse 16, and he says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine, and it is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So just a, just a side note there where he writes in there, he says, Paul... I write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine, and it is the way I write. So you may be wondering, why did he put that there? 
Um, it's, we know that a lot of Paul's writings, actually he wrote through a secretary. He had somebody actually penning the majority of the letter for him. But he also found it important in many of his endings that he would end it like that. And he was actually the guy that would write that last part. Um, and if we go back to 2 Thessalonians 2.2, 2, he actually mentions in there, he says, to not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So the reason why he would do that is because there were people out there that were trying to come and speak in his name or say things that he said. Uh, you know, they didn't have uh, Instagram, Twitter, and all those things, you know, to better keep that stuff current then. So, you know, somebody may be reading this false letter for quite some time before they maybe understood who it was from. So he was intentional about just penning that closing so that they would know that who, where it came from. But, he, but in verse 16, I love what he says here. So he says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. Because he just laid some pretty weighty stuff on him here, um, on this idea of idleness and busyness and this idea that if somebody doesn't follow, that there's, they may have to engage that person, but there's a right way to do it. But I love what he says there. He says that the Lord of peace, and I think what's important for us is that we are always mindful of the characteristics of God, that he is a Lord of peace in our life and situations. It doesn't necessarily mean everything's always, (coughs) excuse me, peaceful, but the idea he is the Lord of peace and that ultimately he's working that in their lives. And ultimately, as we obey his commands and as we move in what he's doing, he's working in our situation. In our times of turmoil, in times when things don't make sense, we can always go back to the Lord of peace. That we can always anchor, as Scripture tells us, that we, our anchor holds within the veil of Christ and who he is. And he says, and the Lord be with you all, that we just do not lose heart. And he always ends here and he says that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be with you all. And there's this picture here that he knows that the church, that it's only by the grace of Jesus Christ that he bestowed on us, that we will be able to move forward in any fashion, that we're going to be able to be effective for his kingdom, be effective for his gospel. He says, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you all. And my encouragement to, to you guys, guys of the church, guys, is that the effectiveness, the effectiveness of the church inside of these walls is going to dictate the effectiveness of this church outside of these walls. So never take it lightly when you enter into church. Um, first of all, that you are here, first of all, f- for you, but you're here for Christ. And your desire is that you would be edified and that you would be built up so that when we walk out of these doors and we meet people in our workplace and we meet people at family gatherings and so forth and so forth, that we are imitators of Christ and that they see that. And that in that, as the Holy Spirit's working in their heart, they begin to see an example of who Christ is, and they're one for Christ. And we do it over and over again until the day we die. And nothing changes. It's an easy, it's an easy and simple thing uh, to say, but the application of it for us is hard. But guys, remember, the effectiveness in here is going to determine our effectiveness out there as a church. God, we do thank you for this time. God, I thank you, God, for your word. And I pray, God, that your word would be heavy on our hearts, Father. God, because it's a word that's able to change, God, and to move, God, and to just, 
God, go into places, God, that we weren't even thought possible, God, to be touched. And God, I pray that we leave here differently than the way that we came in, God, that you watch over us and protect us. God, keep us safe. Father, in Jesus' mighty name, amen. You are dismissed.